Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Shabbat teaching by Rabbi Matt Shapiro. This week, I'll say, I'll say this by way of introduction, I just finished um, a really interesting novel this morning, actually, um, called Trust by an author named Hernan Diaz. And I won't spoil anything just by indicating the structure of the novel. The way the novel is structured is there are four sections that tell, in some ways, essentially the same story. Four sections tell the same story. But because of the way in which each of the sections is set up, because of the perspective of each of the sections, as you move through the novel, you get something a little bit different, uh, an aspect of the story of what's happening with the characters is opened up and expanded because of the way in which that section uh, is laid out. And so whereas if you were to just stop reading the novel after that first section, you would have a piece of the story. But by the time you move all the way through the novel, by the time you get to the end, you have a much fuller and expansive and deeper understanding of what has happened uh, over the course of the events depicted in the novel with the characters. This week, we've started uh, the book of Devarim, the book of Deuteronomy. And um, you might read this book and, and say to yourselves, I would never say something so heretical. But you might say, if you're more heretical than I, gosh, the Torah could have used a better editor. Because a lot of what happens over the course of the book is a recapitulation of events we've already read about. Basically, with a couple of minor exceptions, almost nothing new narratively happens over the course of this book. So it's interesting to think about, and we're going to do some thinking about this together this morning, why do we retell these events? What's the purpose of retelling these stories? Um, I'm going to take us through the first couple of verses and two very different interpretations of them from some of our mafarshim, um, and then we're going to open it up a little bit uh, for some conversation, and then uh, we'll, we'll get to some nice hot chillant on a nice hot day soon. Um, so you see the first six verses of the book laid out there uh, at, the top, at the top of the page, or at the top of the other side of the page, depending on where you're looking. Um, Right? These are the words, these are the matters about which Moses spoke to all of Israel on the other side of the river. Interesting, of course, by the way, saying on the on the other side, right, on the other side of the Jordan seems to imply what? We're already there. Right? I'm not going to say these are all of the matters that were spoken uh, in New York on the other side of the country if I'm in New York. I'd say it if I was in Los Angeles, San Francisco, Seattle perhaps, but I certainly wouldn't say it if I was in New York. So that's already indicating something interesting to us about when and how these, these events are being foretold. I'll leave that there. And we hear about the different 
places we've been, Chorev, Kadesh Barnea, etc., etc. Um, you can read through the, uh, we've defeated Sichon, we've defeated King Og Melach Habashan. Good job, we got him. Um, but I'll just call attention there towards the end. Moses undertook, right, Moshe Be'er et HaTorah Hazot Lemor. That Moses undertook, it's translated there as to expound this teaching, but, but really to, to clarify, right, to further illuminate um, HaTorah Hazot. And Torah, of course, is a, a rich word in our tradition, to say the very least. Translated here as teaching. What is the Torah? What is the teaching? What is the, the content that Moses here is further clarifying, further expounding upon? Good question. Let's see. Um, and then continues. Moses said, the Lord our God spoke to us at Chorev, Mount Sinai, saying, you have saying too stayed too long at this mountain, dot, 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 etc., etc. And from there, Moses goes into a, a, a retelling of part of the story that has already happened. So again, why tell this story again? Uh, two Jews, uh, well, more, two opinions. We usually say two Jews, two opinions. I've tried to synthesize two Jews, two opinions. We don't, it's, it's hot out there. We don't want to tax ourselves too much. Um, but we're going to see very different interpretations from two of the classical Mefarshim here, two of our classic commentators, Rashi and Ramban. Here's what Rashi lays out. Rashi, this is actually... This is how, how you know I'm, uh, one of many ways you know I'm a Jewish dork. This is one of my favorite kinds of Rashi. Yes, that's a phrase I would say. Uh, this is one of my favorite kinds of Rashi, which is that he goes through different phrases, and by the time you make it to the end, he sort of interpolates his comments within the verse, so that by the time you've read through the verse through Rashi's eyes, um, you've seen it a little bit differently. So, Elahadvarim, what does that mean? These are words of Tochecha of harsh rebuke, reproof. And he is enumerating here all the places, and yes, there were many of them, all the places where the Israelites provoked God to anger. So that's why we just refer to these places by name rather than really getting into it, because it's a mere illusion. But when you see those place names, you know what you did, Israelites, right? That, that these are, it's a scolding. It's a, remember what happened last month? Yeah, you do, right? I was there. We were up two months ago. You know, right, that there's, there's a scolding implicit in the way this is laid out. To all of Israel, why? Because if Moses was only giving this tochacha to some of them, then the people who missed class that day would say, but teacher, we didn't hear you say directly to us no spitballs in class. You just told the other kids who were there. Those who were absent might have had you heard from the son of Amram. You didn't say anything. But if we would have been there, we would have argued back. That's why everybody had to be there. He said to them, see, you are all here. Anyone who has anything to say in reply, let him reply. So, so far, here's where we are. Elahad Varim. These are the words. These are the places where Israel did what they shouldn't have done. And he made sure that they were all there so they could all hear it, and so they could all respond if they had anything to say in return. Flip over the sheets for the third piece of what he's going to say. And why Bamidbar? As we move through that first verse, Bamidbar. But, Rashi's pointing out, they weren't Bamidbar in the classical sense when we're talking about the expansive wilderness. They were actually in Moab because they're about, they're on the other side of the Jordan, uh, their other side. They're about to go in. So why does it say Bamidbar? 
It's not saying Bamidbar like you think Bamidbar in the wilderness, but again, Bishvil ma Bamidbar. Again, this is a reference to all of the things that they did that they shouldn't have done before. So reading all of these comments back into this verse, and Rashi goes through the rest of the verse, but I, I cut us off there. These words, which are words of tochacha, words of, uh, of scolding, of reproof, that Moses said to all of Israel so they could all hear it on the other side of the Jordan because of what they did when they were wandering through the desert which is not necessarily what you read if you just read through the straightforward uh, translation of that verse. Okay, It's a scolding. He's referring to the things they did that they shouldn't have done. That's what we're setting up here. Rashi. That's what we got Rashi saying. Ramban sees it very, very differently, however. So if we get into Ramban, he says there's two things being indicated here. The first is that Moses spoke to the children of Israel according to all that God had commanded for him then. This is an illusion, and Ramban's noticing here. There are a few. There's not a lot that happens narratively, but there are some things that are commanded. There are some mitzvot in Dvarim that do not show up elsewhere in the Torah. So it's interesting to think about, even though there's nothing new happening narratively, there are new mitzvot. So... Moses here is indicating that there are going to be commandments coming up that he will tell them in this book that haven't been mentioned thus far. But how can it be? Would Moses make up commandments? Of course not. Moses is God's most most faithful servant. So Ramban is saying these are commandments that Moses heard that haven't yet been transmitted. And so part of the purpose of what's happening in Dvarim is to make sure that Moses gets it all out there before he goes. There's some extra mitzvot coming up, and Moses is preparing the Israelites to hear them. These commandments were exactly God commanded them. He did not add to or subtract from what he could had been commanded. Okay, that's one. And the second thing is, and here he's picking up on a word I referenced earlier, Moses began explaining this law, this be'er I referenced earlier, which is an allusion to the commandments that were already declared, and he's repeating them. Why? To clarify them further and to give further instruction about them. Same verse. Very different interpretations of the verse. Again, Rashi saying this is tochacha, rebuke. Ramban saying prepare for more mitzvot and, and drashing, right? Moses is doing this, right? Moshe Rabbeinu, he's a, our greatest teacher. He's laying things out a little more clearly, hopefully like I'm doing now. He's explaining things so that people will see them from a different perspective. Very different opinions. So my question to you, community members who have so kindly come a little bit closer to share this together. Which one speaks to you more? Which one resonates more? Which one do you think makes more sense? Which one do you think, uh, which, which one do you appreciate? Which one do you like? What do you think? You almost said something, but then you said, what do, what do you think? What do you think? You don't have to tell me why, number one or number two? 
Two? Why? Uh, Will you tell me why? I got you. Give me one. Why do you like it? It's more logical. Okay, it makes more sense. They deserve some rebuke, though, those Israelites, no? Okay, but, but, but Moses is giving this whole speech to explain it a little bit more. Needs some ex- extra uh, explaining. I get it. Yeah, it makes sense to me, too. Thank you. Okay, tell me, Mark. The Israelites who were hearing this rebuke, they weren't there. People who sin, so it's interesting. I was thinking about that too, right? Because that seems to be kind of the most straightforward. Why? Because we know after the incident with, with the spies, we're told that only, only Yoshua and Caleb, only Joshua and Caleb are going to be the ones who enter the land, but otherwise that whole generation will die out. And this and, is the 40th year. This is it. And this is the 40th year. Which is interesting because Rashi doesn't seem to mention that at all. And Rashi was many things. He certainly knew the Torah pretty right. well, right? So it's interesting. just gloss over something. Yeah, so it's, so it's interesting. And, and this is where I'm going to bring us into thinking about this on, on kind of a meta level, right? Which is, it's not just that Moses is retelling to whoever it is. It's not just that Moses is retelling these events. It's now that we have Rashi's reading of Moses' reading of these events, and we also have Ramban's reading of Moses' reading of these events, and now I'm asking you to give me your reading of Rashi and Ramban's reading of Moses' reading of these events, which I'll give away the punchline here. I think that's not a bug, but a feature. And I think that what's being indicated to us in this last book of the Torah is inviting us to think about how and why we tell the stories and transmit the teachings that we do and the way that we do them. I think, I think there's something there that's, that's intentional. Uh, I'll say with, with transparency, um, so I, I led, I, used to, I worked at Beit Shuva down on Venice Boulevard for a few years, um, and I, I guest rabbied, I guessed rabbied there uh, last night, um, and, and I, I double dipped a little bit. I did a version of this teaching at Beit Shuva last night, correctly guessing that the Venn diagram of the folks who were there last night and the folks who are here in the sanctuary right now are me and Ben Siegel. That's it. That's right. Because Ben, just as he interns for us here, he's interning there. He came with me to, to check out services at Beit Shuva. So I did a version of this teaching at Beit Shuva last night. Ben, so far... Uh, I will ask you, did I quote Rashi last night? Did I quote Ramban last night? And that's not a quiz to see if you were paying attention, right? But it was the same idea presented very differently, right? We can take the same idea and depending who we're speaking to and how we're speaking to them, we can transmit the same concept, but in very different ways, which is interesting to think about, yeah? Yeah, Ben has hands up and then Brian. Yeah, Ben. I like them both if you synthesize the ideas together. Great. 
So if you... He says he likes them both if you synthesize the ideas together. So if you understand Rashi is saying this is Tophacha, and Ramban is saying these are additional commandments that we need, then if you synthesize them together, there are additional commandments we need because of all the things that happened when we only had part of the Torah. Beautiful, beautiful. We so need the additional guard pills. Love that. So what Ben said, for those who might not have heard, is that we need both that it actually makes sense to bring these together. On the one hand, the Israelites still need a little tisk-tisking. And on the other hand, there's a recognition that there's still more to be revealed, as it were. And so then because of that, recognizing that there are still some, some faults within the people, there needs to be then that additional layer of teaching, right? So that in the future, hopefully those errors can be avoided or rectified through the additional commandments that Moses is now going to be sharing with the people. Beautiful. I love that. Brant was hailing me from back here. In David McCullough's book on Harry Truman, he said that Truman described the old Missouri tradition as any story worth telling is worth exactly. Mm -hmm. What I wanted to say was is that when you're retelling a story, it's not so much exaggeration, it's emphasis. What you choose to emphasize to your audience, and all I'm saying is pointing out what Mark said, talking to a new generation. Do you scare them by telling them all the bad things that happened to these people? Or do you just allude that they went to these places and then inspired them? Yeah. So I think that, that any time you're telling a story, you have to take account of your audience. You have to emphasize different things. And it depends on that audience. So I, I'm more leaning towards the first and the second, but I think they both offer something. Great. Great. So, so the idea and, and you know, I don't, I don't know if you read on ahead, but I'm, I'm indicating this a little, a little later on in the sheet as well. This concept that whenever you're retelling a story, whether it's exaggeration or a reframing or emphasizing of some details over others, no, no story comes out the same way twice. And so when we think about how and why we retell our stories, noticing why that's happening and how it's unfolding. The, the thing that's coming to mind for me, I mean, there's, there's a, a few different reasons that this is happening. It's inter there, there's all these right, right, remakes of movies coming out now, right? Disney has decided to remake every single movie I grew up with and, and turn it into sort of a weird live action version of itself, yeah? And it's interesting to note why to make money, right? But in addition to making money, uh, when those stories are retold, what's different? And that, that's sort of a, a more superficial kind of thing, but it's a very clear pop culture example of how that happens. Think about it in your families. Raise your hand if you've heard your parents or your grandparents tell a story, the same story, more than once. Elliot's <laughs> <laughs> raising his hand, right? We retell our stories. And the stories are probably a little bit different every time. Right? It's not necessarily going to be factually the same. And I'm going to use that as a jumping off point. I'm mindful of the time. I want to introduce, I'm just going to briefly introduce them for us to kind of uh, noodle on and, and think about as we move into Musaf. But, but there's something interesting in really reflecting in all these different levels about how these stories shift and are reshaped over time and how sometimes that's intentional 
and sometimes that might be unintentional, and trying to call attention for ourselves about when and how and why that happens. Okay, I'm just going to name these. They're, they're, they're fairly uh, chunky quotes there. Um, the first is uh, this really interesting article uh, called Moses Rewrites History that I found that introduces the idea of Moses' counter-transference to the people. So for, for those who, who haven't uh, necessarily encountered that idea before, in brief, if you're meeting with someone in a therapeutic context, right, I'm meeting with the therapist, okay? I'm gonna have certain transference over to that therapist. Right? If my therapist is a male therapist who is a bit older, there's going to be some amount of ways in which my experience with my dad or how I thought about my grandparents, my grandfathers who I never met or, or older male authority figures that are going to get transferred onto how I think about that therapist. And the therapist will inevitably have counter-transference onto me because of how they think about institutional religion or how they think about dudes who wear glasses or because of whatever it is. And it's not good, bad, or otherwise, it just is. There's always gonna be some element of me transferring my experience and feelings onto that person and them transferring their feelings onto me. Just is, we can talk more about that later. It's an interesting idea. And what this author introduces in this article is wondering about Moses is counter-transference onto the people. As Moses is here, delivering the last epic speech of his life, what's going on within him? And how does that inform how he's talking to other people? Is the question that's being asked in this article. And it's interesting, right? We read this first for our speech as the presentation of a leader who engages in kind of a counter-transference when he reflects back to the people what has transpired, right? That's what's happening. And interesting, right, on that right, on that stacking of stories that I was referencing, um, she seems to buy into Rashi's reading more, which is interesting, right? We see in Moses' flawed recollections and chastisement of the people a final attempt to reshape his life story. So here, Ellen Frankel, the author of this piece, is bringing her experience on what counter-transference is, transference is, applying it to this story, reading Rashi's reading into it, applying it, and now we're here thinking about what she's talking about. It's turtles all the way down, right? But for ourselves, given that transference and counter-transference are most of the time unconscious, what I'll invite you to think about with this first concept is when you retell a story, what's it like to notice a little bit more why and how you're retelling that story? That's idea one. Idea two, and um, folks might have heard of this volume, it's a slim but rich and somewhat dense volume called Zachor by Yosef Irushalmi. Um, and, and thanks to uh, this wonderful blog. Have people ever read this blog, The Velveteen Rabbi? Fantastic blog. Um, and not just because of the cute name, it's a great blog, but uh, I read the volume a while back and she handpicked this quote that I think speaks um, to some of the pieces that we're talking about really well here. Yerushalmi's thesis, in very, very brief, is that there's a difference between history and memory. And for most of our time, I won't use the word history, for most of our time as a people, we have been less interested in history 
and more interested in memory. And the concept of Jewish history as an academic discipline is something that's relatively recent. We were historically much more interested in not just the historical facts. We didn't disregard the historical facts, but much more interested in thinking about, here, I'll just, I'll just write. We may safely assume that what was remembered had little or nothing to do with historical knowledge in any sense that we would assign to such a phrase. The Jews who mourned in the synagogue over the loss of the temple, resonant with this time of year, all knew a date of the month. But I doubt if most knew or cared about the exact year when either the first or second temples were destroyed. They knew the Babylonians and the Romans had been the destroyers, but neither could have been historical realities for them. The memories articulated were elemental and moving, but phrased in modes that bypass our notions of knowing history. It's not just about the data. It's about the narratives and meaning that we ascribe to that data. Now, taken too far, that's dangerous. We have to agree on the facts. I'll leave that there. We have to agree on the facts. And if all we have are the facts, something's missing. And so for us to take agency and to actively think about not just the what, but the why and the how. And I'll, I'll, I'm happy to talk about this more. I'm mindful of the time. I think it's really powerful to think about how the, the Torah begins its conclusion by inviting us to think about an intentional rereading or an intentional misreading of where we've been and where we're going. And as we're in Shabbat Chazon, Shabbat when we think about what the vision is, what I want to invite us as individuals and us as a community to think about is treasuring this idea as not a bug but a feature of how we can craft and shape meaning as an intentional tool and tactic for finding that vision for our lives to determine not just where we've been and where we are, but where we hope to go from here. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.